You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording of a lecture by Paul Roth, Distinguished Professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Professor Roth's lecture, Reviving Philosophy of History, was introduced by Professor Maeve Cook from the UCD School of Philosophy. You're all very welcome. My name is Maeve Cook. I'm from the School of Philosophy and I'm very pleased to be introducing uh, this lecture by Professor Paul Roth, who is a guest of the Humanities Institute here in UCD. Uh, Paul is Paul Roth is Distinguished Professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He's published widely on a number of areas, uh, uh, most recently and particularly in light of his talk today, on narrative and, uh, and explanation, uh, particularly in history, also on the philosophy of the social sciences, on uh, naturalised epistemology and on quine. His talk today is called Reviving the Philosophy of History, and I was going to say, uh, I initially thought it was, uh, he was going to be talking about Hegel, uh, but after I had read a line or two, I understood he is, he is not, uh, but maybe he will, uh, maybe he will, he will be open to, uh, to questions as to uh, uh, how uh, the kind of analytical philosophy of history uh, that he is dealing with here, how this might intersect with um, other ways of thinking about history. I'm really delighted uh, that you're here, Paul, and uh, I'll hand things over to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you all for, for, for coming. Um, uh, I have to say the, 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 the topic is uh, a bit of um, reviving the dead on, on my part, um, and so the, the paper has a, a polemical aspect to it where... Um, I'm trying to convince those, both those uh, in departments of history and departments of philosophy that they really need to pay more attention to, uh, to this topic again. So a call to revive uh, philosophy of history will, I expect, quickly prompt at least the following two questions. First, what exactly would this revival revive? And second, why bother? Those skeptically inclined might counsel indefinite postponement inasmuch as this subfield has remained mostly deserted since the 1970s. My primary concern today will be to outline where certain key issues now stand with regard to the first question, that is, with a name to identifying those aspects within philosophy of history that both merit and demand renewed consideration. Specifically, I focus on those features that make historical explanation distinctive and yet belonging to any satisfactory catalog of explanatory strategies. I conclude with two examples meant to illustrate how the answer to the first uh, question, um, namely the question of what it is I want to bring back to discussion, answers the second as well, namely why we should bother with these issues. Um, In this case, Uh, that is, the why bother question, is answered by suggesting how our professional lives exist uh, entangled in agendas set by historical narratives. Philosophy of history, in the sense that primarily interests me, connects to issues that concern the nature of historical explanation. 
those arose in discussions originating in the philosophical literature in the 19th century and in terms that still dominate. Varieties of positivism, whether of the Comtean or Vienna Circle style, advocate for forms of explanation modeled on their idealization of the natural sciences. Uh, historians, although regarding themselves as producing nonfiction, protested that all such models, that is, these science-based models, ill-fit their actual practice. In reaction, theoretically-minded historians and sympathetic philosophers sought to specify why history as practice counts as a science, even if not of a form scouted by assorted positivists. A terminology specific to that early debate invokes a distinction between nomothetic and ideographic modes of explanation. The former, that is nomothetic, explains by regimenting statements of fact into explanatory patterns so as to reveal how such patterns instantiate laws or law-like connections. The, the latter, the ideographic, explains by elaborating those contexts in which things happen. On this account, the specifics of a situation provide what is needed by way of explanation. Later discussions that feature a contrast between thick and thin descriptions that you find in the anthropological literature, uh, where the former invoke highly schematic accounts of what rationality consists in, and the latter study rationality as construed in context evoke this contrast. Economists gone modeling and ethnographers gone native provide contemporary instances of these different explanatory strategies. So while you know, the, sort of the 19th century names have fallen away, you can easily, I think, go to contemporary social science and find both, both forms still alive and well. A distinction between explanation and understanding uh, evolves in tandem with these differing notions of explanation, the suggestion being that nomothetic explanations provide causes and ideographic accounts provide understanding. Uh, causal explanatory, explanatory accounts imply underlying scientific laws, or at least uh, something that resembles them, and so do not depend on time and context. As Hegel remarks, nature has no history. Uh, understanding ties to context typically by seeking to comprehend what counts in a particular situation as good or sufficient reasons for actions. Uh, no claim is made that the goodness of reasons generalizes. Such matters will be specific to time and place. In the context of what comes to be called analytic philosophy of history, the 1942 publication of Carl Hempel's uh, essay, The Function of General Laws in History, makes, marks a critical intervention in this debate. Maybe this is a, a good point just to sort of gesture in the direction uh, Maeve mentions in her, her introduction. Right, The classical philosophy of, of, of history, of the sort that, that Hegel represents, um, Right is teleological. The, the idea of a philosophy of history is to find the underlying pattern. So if you, you think of, of, of uh, a la Charles, Hege, uh, Charles Taylor, of, of Hegel standing at the end of a certain Christian tradition of thought and dropping the God but keeping the notion of teleology there, that was classical philosophy of history. Um, Marx embodies both. Marx, right, on as the economist wants to find underlying laws in a real full-blooded sense of law, economic laws as the engine of historical development. 
There's also a teleology, right, in Mark. He, Marx, he keeps that from Hegel, but as he famously boasts, he turns Hegel on his head. The, the teleology, the, the pattern of history, is going to be driven entirely by material causes for Marx. What happens by the 1940s, and this is a whole other issue, is the teleological bit gets completely cut away. No one wants to talk about teleology uh, anymore, but they do want to talk about patterns of explanation and how patterns that you find in history match up against the patterns you find in the natural sciences. And that's where Hempel really intervenes in the debate. Um, Hempel's essay became the near-exclusive focus of discussion, both in and out of philosophy, by rather infamously insisting that historical explanations in their usual guise constitute at best what, in Hempel's phrase, uh, explanation sketches. Uh, They're sketches, on his view, because they need to be completed by citing some law or law-like connection. Um, So if you're explaining, you know, uh, uh, why, you know the um, the feet of the Spanish Armada or, or something. Uh, and the Hempelian view is that underlying any account you give must be laws that connect the relevant events. Otherwise, you only have the sketch, the beginning of an explanation. Uh, the problem, of course, is not that historians have carelessly neglected to insert the relevant laws, like rush students who omit lines in a proof and so simply need to tidy their presentations up a bit. Rather, historians have no laws to insert, and so it seems no real explanations to offer. In any case, in the subsequent three decades triggered by Hempel's essay, one of the most notable responses can be found in Arthur Danto's important work, uh, Analytical Philosophy of History. It's in Danto's work that I first find the phrase narrative explanation. What makes this point noteworthy is that it comes to name that form of explanation specific to history and connote for our purposes those differences already in play prior to Hempel's article. I claim that Danto's specific way of motivating consideration of this term, that is narrative explanation, and Louis Mink's subsequent crucial modifications and elaborations of Danto's insight remain central to any serious consideration of this topic. I'll just, I'm happy to come back to this point, but um, I repetitiously, as people in this area do, use the term narrative, and I don't have anything particularly fancy in mind. Uh, By narrative, I simply mean a story with a classic beginning, middle, end structure where the structure is supposed to show you how the endpoint is reached by sequencing events uh, from a certain origin to this endpoint right um, so I'm, I'm something of a narrative minimalist uh, uh, here um, but but the key notion of, of, of narrative is just this idea of sequencing of events um, a recent article in um, uh, a companion series, The Philosophy of History, published by Blackwell, um, unfortunately uh, simply repeats the 19th century uh, distinction between ideographic and nomothetic explanation without advancing it. Um, and I mentioned this just, just to say that th- this is, uh, I, I forget, 2010, 2011, that this is published. Uh, 
so the most contemporary sort of sources you can go to simply restate the debate in the 19th century terms and the problems that existed then. So if you're looking at that literature, there's you know, been no significant advance in the discussion. Um, this brief survey serves to emphasize that even with the waning of overt philosophical enthusiasm for some unitary model of scientific explanation, uh, the problems attending historical explanation remained unchanged from their origins well over a century ago. In this respect, by virtue of implicitly or explicitly placing a demand on historical practice that emanates from philosophical preconceptions regarding the logical form of scientific explanations, I have termed the putative problem of historical explanation as one of philosophers' own making. Part of the problem with appreciating narrative as a form of explanation results, I suggest, from a misplaced obsessing regarding how to unpack the notion of, of narrative. Uh, literary theorists typically have formless concerns with narratives, that is, with structural elements uh, that stories of certain types require. Narrative theorists often then offer a catalog of forms of how these uh, uh, structural elements can be intermixed. These considerations are certainly not irrelevant to what historians do. And as Hayden White has famously and rightly emphasized, a choice of narrative form comes politically and morally freighted. But narrative as narrative seemingly has little to do with evaluating epistemic claims, and so any talk of narrative explanation remains problematic, at least for this reason, among analytic philosophers. So right, the idea behind Hempel's view that's carried forward is this, and what I'm trying to capture by labeling the interest epistemic, that um, on this view, what you really want to be able to do is cognitively assess, have criteria for cognitively assessing the goodness or badness of a, of a given explanation, right? In the same way that given a proof in mathematics or a paper in chemistry or physics, right, you just see if it cites the relevant laws, you, you see if it goes through the right steps to prove what it claims, the idea is that you should be able to do the same with any explanation in a real science. The problem with a narrative is, if you view it through the lenses of uh, literary theory, is these questions simply don't arise. Right? If they're interested in any criteria, it's aesthetic criteria not cognitive criteria, not evaluative criteria. And this is why uh, uh, Hempel effectively exiled historians from the realm of science. He said, you, until you can tell me what makes your explanations better or worse from, from a cognitive standpoint, from an evaluative standpoint, how am I supposed to rationally assess what it is you claim to be doing? Um, now, showing how narratives uh, could address and impact epistemic considerations constitutes my primary reason for bringing the discussion back to Dante's work. For in that moment of the debate, there exists not only a sharp focus on epistemic issues, but also at least the beginnings of an answer. This process dies a warning for a number of reasons. For one, uh, while Dante does develop his own account of narrative as a form of explanation, it ultimately overlooks a number of his own best insights. Uh, in this respect, uh, Louis Mink uh, 
contemporary of Danto's, sees better than Danto himself does what Danto's account achieves for purposes of elucidating and clarifying the justificatory role of a historical narrative. Danto's notion of a narrative sentence and his intended account of an ideal chronicle uh, rank as the most important insights. So um, what I'm trying to pull out of Danto and make part of, again, was a famous thought experiment that was in Danto's book. And the purpose of the thought experiment was to show that whatever historians are doing, it can't be to... Uh, it can't be something along the lines of trying to establish an ideal or a perfect chronicle of what happened. And he sets up a, a thought of experiment. It's a form of called a reductio argument. That is, he assumes such a perfect chronicle is possible and then shows it's incoherent. That is, that it leads to uh, contradictions. Um, and so he posits a being that's capable of recording everything that happens at the moment it happens. Right? This is the ideal chronicler composing the ideal chronicle. So why doesn't this, this being uh, capture every relevant truth that there is to be known historically? Here, Danto introduces what he calls a narrative sentence. And I'll give you one, and I think once you have one, you can quickly see what the, what the uh, underlying idea is and generate your own example. So Danto's canonical example is the Thirty Years' War begins in 1618. Now, why is this relevant? Well, the claim is, right, that sentence, that statement is true of 1618, but literally unknowable, even by a being with perfect apprehension, in 1618. Why? Because, right, as time goes on, we learn that things that happened in the past are antecedents of future events that we didn't anticipate, right? So, you know, traveling around Dublin, you know, the uprising. Well, right, the uprising is in part significant, I take it, because it leads to 1922, right? It might have been also an incident, but it would have been very differently freighted. But at that moment, they don't know it's a, a prelude to independence in, in 22. Uh, and Danto's claim, which I think is correct and I'm willing to defend, is that history is essentially like this, that historians are interested in taking uh, events, looking for antecedents in the past, and then developing accounts of how those antecedents led to the event you're really interested in. But these all evolve, involve narrative sentences. And the interesting feature I want to suggest to you about a narrative sentence is that it literally adds truths to the past. The Thirty Years' War began in 1618, adds a truth about 1618 not knowable at that moment. That's the claim. So there are many, you know, so... Just to give you a couple of other examples I have in mind as I'm, I'm going on here. So even works that seem not to have a narrative structure, so Huizenga's famous The Waning of the Middle Ages or Burkhardt's uh, uh, The Culture you know, uh, uh, of the Renaissance in Italy, 
Um, right? You can't speak of the waning of the Middle Ages except retrospectively. Right? The waning of the Middle Ages begins in the you know, mid-14th century. The Renaissance begins when Petrarch uh, climbs the mountain. Right? Then you can articulate truths about the Middle Ages or the late Middle Ages or about the Renaissance that literally would have been impossible before. That's the claim. Now, Mink makes the point that uh, the reason that uh, Danto's thought experiment works the way so well is that in history, we don't have standardized descriptions of events. That is, if you think of a science like chemistry, where you have the periodic table, gives you atomic structure, you then have rules that, about how all things can combine, right? History, you just have arrays of facts. How they can combine, what counts as a war, what counts as a significant event, isn't given in any standardized form. It's given as a construction of the work of history. Think of the Renaissance uh, in in, in this regard. Um, Now, of course, some sciences like economics work very hard to try and normalize events, but the the economists are actually notably unsuccessful in their by, you know, despite being better paid than many of us uh, in their attempts to, to do this. So there are clear attempts in social science to kind of normalize historical events, but, but they're more notable for their lack of success than, than, than otherwise. Um, as Mink puts it, Danto's argument brings out uh, with maximum forcefulness uh, the point that there are many descriptions of, of an event and no standard or complete description. As a result, the description of the past does not come closer and closer to an ideal chronicle, but departs further and further from it as more descriptions become available. One final twist here that that Mink notes is you also get what Mink calls conceptual asymmetry. So uh, his example is the urban poor of ancient Rome constituted the first urban proletariat. Now, right... The idea of an urban proletariat emerges later, but from an explanatory standpoint, you can conceptually apply it to earlier groups. Again, that, that's a type of narrative sentence. The point, in short, concerns the fact that a historian constitutes events that could not have been known prospectively. This much one learns from Danto and narrative sentences. Prediction cannot be the point of historical explanation, but even more to the explanatory point, since what calls for explanation emerges only in retrospect, and while narrative charts a developmental path from earlier to later, the path it carves exists in a landscape of its own, that is, the narrative's making. Not, of course, because the world it depicts does not exist. Rather, the narrative selectively orders materials. That results, I maintain, from the fact that the events to be explained and the events used to explain it to be, turn out to be part and parcel of the narrative to which they belong. Events do not come prepackaged like elements uh, of in a periodic table. Um, we can now appreciate two special characteristics of historical narratives as explanations that Mink emphasizes. First, histories cannot be expected to aggregate. 
Mink powerfully puts this point in terms of a lingering but unacknowledged appeal of the notion of a universal history. As he puts it, the determinateness of the past is part of the common sense ontology. It is not a theory but a presupposition of unreflective experience. Um, that is to say, if you have a shared belief in God or, or the Geist or whatever, then you expect everything that happens of, in history to be part of the same story, right? The theolo you know, th theological teleologies are particularly helpful <coughs> examples here. Everything's leading to a particular end. That's how all history ultimately falls into that pattern. But once the teleological assumption goes, there is no single pattern, there is no single story, and so there's no reason to expect that all the different stories out there will comprise or belong to one large story, right? They won't aggregate, as Mink puts it. Um, the second feature is what Mink calls the non-detachability of, of the uh, of the narrative, um, and I'll start to give a concrete example in a moment. But the idea is this: if someone says, "Well, what's the Renaissance?" And you say, "Well, read Burkhart. You know, or you, know, you in order to understand what this period is supposed to mean, you actually have to read the book that characterizes it. Right? There, there's no independent way of saying what this event is supposed to mean. Mink calls this the non-detachability thesis. You want, you know, and you, you think, well, what about the Second World War? You know, just take some fairly generic, historically closer event. Again, same, same problem arises. You know, when does, I, I found an Australian historian who likes this part of a school that speaks just of the long world war sees any division between the First and Second World Wars mistaken, artificial, right? There, there were just periods of greater and lesser uh, uh, hostility or overt, right? So how, how events get periodized um, is not detachable, is not separable from the work that presents them. So an, an example here would be an evolution of the discussion of the Holocaust, um, as those who track debates surrounding historical explanation realize, this example is not randomly or casually chosen. For any view that smacks a type of relativism, as mine certainly does, quickly becomes charged with denying the reality of the Holocaust, or you know, just pick your favorite historical atrocity. You know, say, huh, you, you, know, you don't think there's one correct history? You mean you don't think X is real? That, that's the sort of you know, first question out of some from some people. Um, now, seeing uh, the histories as products of a narrative process appears uh, tantamount to some as aiding, abetting, re revisionist, Holocaust denial, you know, so forth, and so just denying human suffering on a monumental scale. And indeed, uh, my view does understand events such as the Holocaust as in important sense of social construction, at least in the following sense. Were it not, I would claim, for the publication of Roel Hilberg's Destruction of the European Jews, it's circa 1960, it would be highly unlikely that discussion of Nazi policy with respect to the Jews would receive the scholarly attention it does. 
right? Last time I saw a number, there's something now, a bibliography of items, books and articles on the Holocaust approaching 80,000 items. Now, you know, the interesting thing, uh, if you have any background in this area, is right, um, Hilberg writes in, in 1960, and he doesn't really introduce any new facts. I mean, you, you would think that this was just common way of discussion, discussing the events post-45. It's not true at all. Indeed, the term Holocaust doesn't even come into the literature until a later, a later point. Uh, Hilberg's contribution here is to show it as state policy and not just the action of a few crazed anti-Semites. This is what, and Arendt's work owes, uh, as she you know, acknowledges, though probably not enough, owes a great deal. She could not have written Eichmann in Jerusalem without being well acquainted with, with Hilberg's work. The whole idea of banality of evil, as evil as a process, of, a result of bureaucratic processes, is a distillation of Hilberg's thesis and, and was not, as it were, part of the common sense or the historical received wisdom until Hilberg. Um, uh, put another way, one could have histories of the Second World War and the rise and fall of the Third Reich that simply did not feature uh, uh, the Holocaust, didn't mention it. I mean, not because they were denying anything, it's just, right, it was just a few crazed indiv individuals in an unfortunate aspect of that period of time. Um, all could agree that people died, that the Nazis had racial laws, and so forth, and yet none of this have been marked out for any special attention or study. Um, uh, in short, discussions of the Holocaust as an event in its own right, as one that grimly foreshadows what happens repetitively going forward in the 20th century as a basis for rethinking the limits of nation states for purposes of judging war crimes and the rest, depends in many key respects on how Hilberg bequeaths to us uh, a way of thinking about that time. I'll just uh, quickly want to share to you a, a quote from uh, Hilberg's work. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it captures the essence of what, in fact, he, he did. He, he writes uh, of his own work, he, he writes, in retrospect, it may be possible to view the entire design as a mosaic of small pieces, each commonplace and lusterless by itself. Yet this progression of everyday activities, these file notes, memoranda and telegrams, embedded in habit, routine, and tradition, were fashioned into a massive destruction process. Ordinary men were to perform extraordinary tasks. Right? So this idea of a mosaic, what I love in this was right, a mosaic of small pieces. That's exactly what Hilberg did. Right? He took all the pieces that were already out there and reshaped them in a different way. So using the Hilberg example, right, I'm trying to say here's a much studied event that's uh, uh, historically near and we forget what the origins of discussion were. And the origins very much fit, I claim, the pattern of narrative explanation, the features that I laid out. You can't detach Hilberg's account from his way of organizing, presenting all those pieces. And there's no standardized way of, of debating or understanding what happened during that period. Um, a 
I first gave this paper at a convention of philosophers of science, and so I chose as my second example uh, a fellow, uh, Michael Friedman, who's a very prominent philosopher of science in the United States, uh, philosopher of physics, um, written on technical notions of explanation. You know, so the, the, the paradigm, the model of, you know, no one in that audience was going to say, oh, this person doesn't understand the logic, this person doesn't understand the science. The interesting thing about Friedman is he's become, over the course of his career, increasingly interested in the history of philosophy, and in particular, um, uh, the so-called divide uh, between analytic and continental philosophy, how this got started. And he's had a key role in reshaping our understanding. So rather now than seeing Heidegger and Carnap as mutually uh, just not comprehending, he's very persuasively, certainly persuaded me, to see them as neo-Kantians arguing over very specific interpretations of Kant. And he wrote a very influential book called The Parting of the Ways, and it focuses on a famous conference that took place in Davos, Switzerland, where Cassirer, uh, uh, Ernst Cassirer, represents the Marburg School of Neo-Kantianism, was giving lectures as well as Heidegger, who represented a different school, and Carnap's in the, author, in, in the audience representing uh, uh, yet, uh, well, a variant, uh, a Marburg variant of, of neo-Kantianism. So it's not only that they're physically in the same place, they're all talking to each other. They're, they're attending each other's lectures, right? There's no, no claims of incomprehension, you know, uh, as you would find in going on in philosophy departments, I think, for most of our, our careers, right? So it's, it's right, uh, an important moment. Um, so I claim that Friedman offers, in Parting of the Ways, a very interesting explanation, indeed a specifically historical narrative explanation that follows the pattern I've rehearsed. I suggest that his explanation has important implications for a contemporary debate regarding the state and nature of what has come to be called analytic philosophy, uh, which, you know, have, one of the subjects I teach is history of analytic and this is just rife now with completely incompatible histories of, of how the topic develops and where it goes and you know, what the, even what the important issues are. Um, uh, so although not a necessary feature of narrative explanation of my configuration, Friedman's title, that is, A Parting of the Ways, does display exactly the sort of narrative structure that Danto teaches us to attend to. Davos comes to mark on Friedman's telling a parting of the ways, but of course this appears only retrospectively. Those at Davos could not have used some model of explanation to uh, uh, divine this. Friedman uh, roots his tale of that encounter uh, in these conflicts about the Kantian uh, project. As Friedman puts it, he proposes to show, and that's his term, I have it quoted in the paper, uh, quoting now for Friedman, that the Davos encounter between Carnap, Kassirer, and Heidegger has particular importance for our understanding of the ensuing split between what we now call analytic and continental philosophical traditions. Before this encounter, there was no such split. I further hope to show, Friedman continues, that carefully attending to the very different ways 
in which he, the thought of all three philosophers evolved in sharply diverging directions from a common neo-Kantian core can greatly illuminate the nature and sources of the analytic continental divide. Um, Friedman, in short, means to show how the, a present, unanticipatable in the past, nonetheless came to be the intellectual and professional space that many philosophers now inhabit. This conforms, I take it, with exactly the points on which Danto and Mink insist. Historical explanations as narrative explanations concern themselves with development or innovative processes that emerge only in retrospect, and that the purpose of a narrative is to trace a path of development, a path not defined or marked by any known laws. The event emerges only as an event because our interests call it into being. Events so constituted do not represent or embody some natural kind, um, like oak trees. Um, Following that path might well and perhaps even should change our perception of how to proceed on the basis of an altered understanding of the past. As Friedman writes, quoting now, we have now arrived at the beginning of our own particular story and a fundamental intellectual crossroads. Uh, one need not agree with Friedman in all particulars to share his sense that philosophy, in particular analytic philosophy, I would say, what's called analytic philosophy, uh, does stand at a crossroads, one rooted in divergent and deeply contested ways of understanding the legacies of Frege, Russell, Carnap, Wittgenstein, Quine, and Sellers. Um, one paragraph left, I'll in, ask your forbearance, just um, a quote from a contemporary uh, historian of analytic philosophy, Tom Ricketts, um, very, very prominent, at least in, in the States on this, um, wrote an essay on Frege, Carnap, and Quine. And um, I like this quote with both, obviously, it, it supports my view, but I, I, can, I can hear Tom saying these words there's a stained disgust in his voice as he, as he writes them or speaks them. He, the quote is, he goes, on the story I tell, that is about Frege, Carnap, and Quine, the central strand of the analytic tradition and philosophy decisively shaped by our three figures has, I think it fair to say, no salient continuation, no salient continuation among those who name themselves the heirs of that tradition. So <laughs> this is how Ricketts views contemporary analytic philosopher. Um, uh, and you know, he was a student of Quine's, uh, you know, analytic to the core, but just doesn't see anything going on in the field right now as a, as, as a relevant continuation. This is just to give you a sense of how sharp, how sharp the break is just within this one field. In any case, I have no doubt that deeply instilled cravings for generality will prompt dismissal out of hand of the very particularist and pluralist view of narrative explanations, such as I suggest. As explanations, narratives will only wet and not slake a thirst for a general theory. But histories like ethnographies and literature more generally thrive on displaying the peculiarities and particularities that beings like us so innovatively and endlessly display. I worry that we work against ourselves in a very basic respect by a continued refusal to acknowledge that narratives explain. Thank you.